Hi, and welcome to the Grant Thornton Risk and Regulation Unraveled podcast, our monthly review of developments and emerging trends in the world of financial services regulation. I am David Moy, and I'm joined as ever by my colleague Ben Farmer. Say hello, Ben. Hello, Ben. Um, and today we are going to run through uh, some of the uh, some of the emerging developments that we're seeing. Um, uh, we're going to run through some consultation papers, which is always exciting, I know. And we're going to look at some of the enforcement cases, uh, which are as ever relatively juicy, unless you're on the receiving end of them. Um, I thought we'd start off though, Ben, uh, with uh, consumer duty. Um, oh, that makes a change. Yes, <laughs> I know. Originality is not my middle name. Um, we, we, I suppose there's a couple of things to say there, isn't it? So, so one, I know the FCA, um, uh, one of the FCA executives uh, gave a speech for quite recently uh, around consumer duty and it, and, it, and it being a uh, sort of an ongoing task. I, I described this as the, uh, you know, consumer duty is not just for Christmas speech, I think will be my my summation of it. Yeah. But what, 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 what's your slightly more professional summary of it? Well, I I would certainly agree. That's a, that's a fair summary. So this was uh, Nishi Aurora, who's the director of cross-cutting policy and strategy at the FCA. Uh, she tells with it, consumer duty not once and done. So it's a very similar sentiment to yours, really, isn't it? Just in slightly different words. Um, reiterating the need for continued focus on consumer duty now that we're theoretically in this sort of post-implementation world. Uh, set out many of the reasons why SCA thinks consumer duty is needed, the intended benefits, things that listeners to this podcast, I'm sure, are all fairly well versed in by now. Um, did, which was interesting, pull out a few of the particular areas that are currently high on the FCA's radar when they're looking at consumer duty. So the importance of it as a central cultural focus of firms, highlighting some examples of good practice being those firms who have put customer outcomes centrally to their purpose and values, made the reflective updates to things like training materials, performance management frameworks, bonus and incentive schemes. Uh, also a big focus on the data that firms have got to be able to evidence their compliance with the consumer duty, uh, specifically calling out that firms who are just repackaging existing data are probably not going to be meeting the FCA's expectations. Lots more of the usual stuff on testing, monitoring, etc. But also the big focus for the next area for firms is on the annual board reports. Mm. Obviously, consumer duty requires all boards to have an annual report on the extent to which they comply with the duty. Uh, and I would think a lot of those things around, uh, you know, not just repackaging your MI, but but you know, rethinking and re redeveloping that uh, for the consumer duty would uh, would would factor into how how good or otherwise those those annual reviews are. I would imagine. Oh yes, exactly, and, and a statement that uh, you'll need to be able to provide the report and the management information that sits behind it on request. So. I think reading between the lines there, if you're on fixed supervision from the FCA, expect your supervisors to be asking for a copy of that probably about 24 hours after you finish it. Yes, that's okay. So so it's not just a, a report, it's the evidence that supports the report. Um, that's yeah. um, well, okay. So uh, so so that, that that certainly sounds like the FCA are um, continuing to uh, with the message that consumer duty is something they're going to treat very seriously. Um, we we. We we get as as you know Ben quarterly statistics on the number of skilled person reviews that are issued and and you know, Grant Thornton is quite active in that marketplace so so we see quite a lot of those scopes and uh, and um, I was taking a look at the quarterly the last quarterly drop so the most recent quarterly data that we have um, is, is the quarter in which the consumer duty went live actually so the July to to, to September and um, that, there's quite a big jump in the number of skilled person reviews compared to the prior quarter. Um, uh, yes, 18 this quarter, as opposed to 11. 
Uh, and and like 15 of those 18 were either in retail banking slash slash consumer lending or, or general insurance. So yeah, that's a, that's a that's most of them in those in those two sectors. Um, so so what are we seeing trend wise, and is there a link there? Do you do you think to the consumer duty? I think there is. Obviously, skill person reviews by their nature normally look backwards a little bit. So not very many of these I don't imagine will be core looking at is this firm currently compliant with consumer duty? Um, that said, most skilled person work for the FCA asks for it on what it terms a review and recommend basis. Obviously that recommend part becomes forward looking. I don't know what you're seeing, David, but most of the ones we're doing at the moment in the GI space, when we're having the discussions with SCA supervisors and we come to that recommend part, consumer duty does tend to enter the conversation yeah. fairly yeah. regularly there. Yeah. Even if you're looking backwards at a time before those were the rules. Um, yeah, I mean, the FCA did say that it was going to get out and start using consumer duty, and it did warn the GI industry, particularly from a product government's perspective, you're first. So these figures do seem to have borne that out, don't they? Mm -hmm. um, at this spot, though, of those 18, five of them are on financial crime. So they yeah. they don't correlate the which sectors no. it is and what topics it is. So maybe no. I'm guesstimating here, but lots of banks, lots of thing crime yes. reviews. Yeah, most of those fin crime are, are in banking slash payment services. Although we have, the, there's a subset there. So some of that banking number are, um, it, 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 but a minority are um, customers in financial difficulties, which again is, uh, you know, then they're treating, sorry, their treatment in when they get into arrears, et cetera, um, yeah. which is an area that, you know, that, that, that could could have been and has been addressed by reviews prior to the consumer duty. But, but obviously you can clearly wrap the scope up now with, uh, um, with, with a, uh, under the heading of consumer duty uh, and the way customers are treated and the outcomes they're achieving. Um, so probably an example where, you know, the FCA could have done something under the old regime, but uh, it's, it's, it's now it's just as easy and convenient, probably easier and, and more convenient to wrap it up under consumer duty. Um, um, OK, so, well, we'll interesting to see if this trend continues. Uh, big quarterly jump in skilled person work, at least a decent chunk of it. Um, consumer duty related or at least wrapped up under the consumer duty um, we shall keep an eye on the next quarterly drop to see whether that trend continues um, moving forward um, so our first consultation paper of the day um, is uh, the uh, joint consultation between the FCA and the uh, Bank of England on diversity and inclusion um, and uh, Grant Thorne will be uh, running separate events on this so I will encourage people to to, to 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 come and join that. Um, we'll just give a quick summary. Um, I mean, it's certainly certainly written in a very strategic way. I, I guess would be my first takeaway. It, it refers to you know, diversity being central to the to all of the statutory objectives of those regulators. Um, it uh, points to what it considers unequal outcomes in in uh, for for some minority groups. Just talking about, uh, as an example, the 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 level of personal pensions, either the number of personal pensions held within a certain ethnic groups compared to others, um, and um, uh, suggests that some of that may be some of those unequal outcomes might be driven by a lack of diversity within the financial services industry. Um, so um, it, 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 yeah, it, it, it's got some some specific requirements, which which I know Ben, you're going to come on to. Um, it, there is. Uh, Quite a lot of discussion. Uh, I think I think uh, the probably we've seen press reports. I mentioned there'll be some quite interesting feedback that that that, that is presented. Um, I, I think it's probably fair to say 
that uh, you know one of the hot button issues is probably going to be the socioeconomic elements of this. Uh, for instance, there's a, there's a line I note in the DP where it says uh, 90% of 90% of people in senior management roles in financial services are from higher socioeconomic groupings, which is a pretty high correlation. Um, you, 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 you would think, um, uh, but relatively speaking, if you then look at what the the the, the, the paper sets out, it it, does, it kind of de-emphasizes, or it doesn't 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 doesn't, um, doesn't strongly emphasize the socioeconomic aspects of diversity um, in a way that maybe it does around gender and ethnicity. Um, and um, I, I, I know there's going to be there is some um, market feedback around the role, the role and level that that, that those socioeconomic factors might play in diversity. Um, do you want to run through the specific requirements that are going to be imposed on firms? And I think it's a, it's like 251 employees upwards, isn't it, these rules? Yeah, so these, these rules catch what the SCA is terming large firms, um, for which they've mainly borrowed the definitions from the Companies Act. So basically, if you're in scope of the existing gender pay gap reporting, right. you're probably in scope of this. So large firms is uh, a firm with 251 or more employees over a rolling three-year period. And then because the SCA has to put its own little spin on every pre-existing definition it ever tries to use, it's also saying all dual regulated firms are going to be in scope as well. Uh, so, yes, these firms will have to report ethnicity and disability alongside their existing reporting of the gender pay gap. Uh, they'll have to publish firm plans for moving the dial on diversity and inclusion, so they'll have to have a firm strategy which they'll have to publish. Uh, this needs to include targets for underrepresented groups, um, but the FCA isn't mandate or PRA are not going to mandate which demographic characteristics those targets need to cover. That's the bit that firms have to work out for themselves by sort of comparing their own makeup against the wider diversity of the UK population and the area where they carry out their regulated activities. Uh, boards are expected to take ownership of those plans, as you'd probably expect. Uh, and then there will be a diversity and inclusion regulatory return. So this isn't just for large firms, this is for all firms except limited scope SMCR firms. Uh, the yeah. mandatory items there including religion, sexual orientation, sex or gender identity which doesn't quite align with the equality act 2010 which i think is just biological sex yeah. uh, but because many many firms already do collect gender identity information the fca is not going to discourage them from doing that uh, age disability ethnicity and then there'll also be some voluntary items for that report which include uh, whether people are parents or carers uh, how the board compares and senior managers compare to the rest of the business uh, and one other thing to note is that the scope of all of this is only for activities carried out from a UK establishment. It's going to happen at an entity level rather than a group level. And it's only for firms undertaking activities regulated by part four of FISMA. Okay. So if you're on, even if you're FCA regulated, if you're not doing something that requires part four permissions, you're still out of scope. OK, OK. Um, OK, that's that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's some of the feedback as well, I think, is probably that at least for the largest organisations, um, they're probably doing all that already, aren't they? I mean, it's not, obviously not, maybe not all the regulatory returns that they go along with they're, it. But, they're probably uh, collating a lot of it and already probably have some form of strategy. Yes. Or, but. Or, or, almost certainly. I mean, I'm not sure. Yeah. 
at, at some level, I'm sure there are, there are organizations with more than 251, 251 employees that aren't, aren't doing that, but, but at the top end of the uh, organizational sort of uh, structures uh, size-wise, um, there probably won't be much new, much new there. Um, no, equally, I guess, being slightly cynical, maybe the, the regulators putting it on their agenda and making it clear that it's their priority will perhaps focus some of the more operational and less HR focused bits of the boards to perhaps pay this more attention than maybe they have done. Yeah. Again, and, and, the firms are doing this properly, that won't be changing much, but no. No, and and, and the um the consultation paper does does reference the discussion paper that preceded it and some of the observations there around um there being plans that uh were a bit woolly and and didn't necessarily you know lead lead to much in the way of practical change. So so we, I guess with all with all uh, areas of rulemaking, whether it's the consumer duty or diversity and inclusion, the FCA and PRA are going to be are going to be in a position to ask, well, okay, so what has changed as a result of this, um, and uh, what difference has it made in practice? And uh, and those are yeah, those, those are potentially harder questions to answer than have you got a strategy? Yes, no. Um, um, now the, the the consultation paper. Doesn't just cover DNI in, in, in the areas that, that, that you've just covered, Ben, but it also talks about um, changes to the requirements for the fit and proper assessment. Uh, so that's the assessment that every organisation has to make in relation to its senior managers and certified staff, um, and it's basically calling out much more clearly, explicitly than, than before, that non-financial misconduct should feature uh, within that. So. Um, you know, personal behaviours, bullying, harassment in the workplace, potentially or outside of the workplace, um, are, are now explicitly being called out as, as factors that, that an organisation could consider when it's when it's making an, its annual fit and proper assessment. Uh, and there's guidance in there around, you know, it's, it's this is about serious incidents of bullying and harassment, as opposed to, you know, all those not serious bullying and harassment incidents that, um, <laughs> that, that, that obviously take place. Um, uh, that uh, factors that might cause you to judge whether something is is, is worthy of um worthy of a finding for, for fitness and propriety would be like the frequency and the duration of the behavior the level of impact on the victim um uh it, it, it's uh it's oh yes i i mean i guess it's 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 fair enough in the sense that it makes sense uh clearly if uh if you, you read stories about some of the, the goings on in O'Day asset management, for instance, more, you know, one, would, one would have to say that there definitely should be consideration of factors like this. I think it's it, it's going to be still remain quite tricky for organisations to judge, you know, what what constitutes um, serious versus not serious. Um, but but at the very least, it's uh, you know it can't be overlooked, it can't be swept under a rug. It's going to have to be specifically tackled in in any uh, fitness uh, uh, assessment feedback. To the consultation by the 18th of December, final rules in 2024 with a 12-month transition slash implementation period to follow. Um, one short note, uh, there was a line in the consultation, but there's a paper that says nothing in our proposals would lead that would lead. To, uh, sorry, there are no, there is nothing in our proposal that would lead to closure of a bank account. Uh, <laughs> um, so not so not trying to get firms to uh, rebalance the the. Yeah inclusivity yeah, so. of their customer base by just binning off a few people it, it, indeed so the, yeah that's that's the uh, the, the coots nigel farage um sentence has made an appearance in that um in that consultation okay watch this space as, as, I, as I think uh, uh, i alluded i i think this, this probably will generate quite a lot of 
quite a lot of feedback um, as part of the consultation, and, and so we'll see see how that develops. Um, uh, take a step away from consultation papers. There's a few more to cover, but we'll come back to them later. Have you been to the cinema lately, Ben? Um, well, I haven't, but if I had, I would have seen an FCA advert potentially. Um, oh my goodness, do tell. I know that's that's not not their typical uh, approach, is it? So there's a movie called Dumb Money coming out soon, which is basically the the tale of the GameStop saga, where oh, yes. I think basically institutional investors were betting against it, retail investors started betting for it, and then there was a period of incredibly high volatility and a lot of hype. So a lot of sort of first-time investors buying lots of these stocks and then therefore a lot of inexperienced investors potentially losing quite a lot of money which you know is exactly the sort of thing the FCA sort of would like to try and stop a recurrence of if it can. Uh, so they've commissioned an advert as part of their invest smart campaign so this will play in the so-called golden spot immediately before the main feature in these uh these films. Um, I've not made it to the cinema yet I did go on YouTube where you can watch the FCA's advert uh youtube being what it is obviously makes you watch a few of its own adverts before you can watch the <laughs> advert you've gone there to see and guess what they were for um <laughs> so in, once in a lifetime investment opportunities yes tell. yes in a, in a quite enjoyable piece of irony i was before i could get to the fca's advert i was forced to watch a advert for an investment trading masterclass that claimed it would <laughs> let me print my own money according to the narrator who was driving around in a rolls royce during this advert um that seemed to be focused on forex trading um <laughs> Right. Then after the FCA's advert, there was one on property investment and two of the suggested videos, it said that because you've watched the FCA's campaign, you might interest, included uh, what's the best state to start an SIP and, mm. and I'm quoting now, how to invest in crypto and never go broke. So basically, so, basically if, if you if you if you Google or you YouTube uh, the uh, Invest Smart advert from the FCA, you will be immediately directed to a number of get rich quick schemes. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> the, the algorithm then, because it thinks you're interested in investment, uh, serves you exactly the sorts of hype led scams that this advert yeah, is exactly. attempting to direct you away from. Um, um, YouTube, YouTube has a sense of humour, or maybe not. Yeah, I don't exactly, know. Yeah. Okay. Heralds um, of the internet age. Um, the, the, coming back to the ad itself, it's fairly straightforward. It basically just gives an example of the sort of social media posts that might build this mm. kind of hype and, and then gives its key message, which is that smart investors take time to research an opportunity rather than just jumping straight in. But uh, more interesting than the ad itself, I think, is just this fact of the FCA commissioning mm. an advert during the trailers in the cinema. It's sort of it's interesting, isn't it, to see the FCA taking more steps to communicate much more directly and prominently with the public itself to sort of land its own messaging and education rather than I think before it's more just sort of lent on firms to do the right thing and to try and educate their customers as and when they can. Yes, Whereas now yeah. now the FCA is out getting ahead of it saying, you know, these things are harmful, don't get involved. Yes, well, I, I I do go to the cinema quite a lot, so I'll, but normally that that during that during the adverts, I'm working my way through my pick and mix, and uh, um, uh, but I'll, I'll obviously pay attention when that advert comes on. Actually, speaking of pick and mix, I've, I've uh, in terms of the podcast, I've I've, I've volunteered to do a quick rundown of some uh, Bank of England consultation papers, um, so I'll try and machine gun through these uh, for those that are interested. Um, I guess arguably, well, I don't know. I was going to say the big one actually. There's, there's a couple of these which are which are quite big, but um, the uh, second consultation on solvency two changes has come out, and this was the one that that people were expecting to make the biggest difference in terms of you know, capital and 
um, investment investment knock on effect in terms of the, the how, how assets can be invested. It's around the matching adjustment, which is basically um, uh, uh, the ability of an insurance company to recognise future investment income that sort of matches up against liabilities and recognise its capital. In order to recognise its capital, however, it's got to be invested in some incredibly safe fixed income products um, and uh, well, amongst various changes, um, the consultation paper talks about um, being able to invest uh, a chunk of that portfolio in um, things, highly predictable cash flow investments as opposed to fixed cash flow investments. So um, it will allow more flexibility as intended, I think, from a, from a politician's eye view to to encourage uh, you know, the insurers to be able to, to invest more in um, slightly more speculative or, or investment opportunities to drive the engine of entrepreneurial Great Britain to you know ever greater heights, free up capital essentially. Yeah, um, there was thought that this was meant to facilitate, particularly the big life insurers putting their capital into infrastructure yeah. investment, wasn't there? Although yeah. whether yeah. that counts as predictable anymore? Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the prime examples of, of what it might be now. Um, now I have to say it's you know it goes it's essentially only ten percent of, of of the matching adjustment fund can be invested in 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 things in in these slightly riskier um, investment products so it's pretty limited I mean I've seen seen different analysis some some suggesting it probably won't make a great deal of difference in terms of what gets invested elsewhere some some which are a bit more optimistic it is it is one of the Edinburgh reforms so it is one of the you know the the, the areas that uh, that were signalled as um, evolving away from solvency two, so we've got the European Union um, solvency two rules. So so it's a Brexit Brexit uh, bonus. Um, we shall see how much difference it makes. Uh, June twenty twenty four implementation. So um, uh, it will. Uh, that's the kind of timeline we're talking about there. Um, similarly, part of the Brexit uh, Brexit. Um, and an Edinburgh reform uh, uh, follow on. Um, and this is a policy statement actually rather than a consultation paper. The uh, the uh, the rules on bankers bonuses uh, and as has been covered in the press have, have now gone. So um, from uh, uh, end of October this year, the um, the rules that restricted bankers bonuses from being sort of twice uh, fixed. So the variable element can only be could only be twice twice the um and uh, the, the 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 fixed element is now gone. Uh, that will affect performance years from this point forward. So probably uh, probably 2024 year. So it's probably bonuses that are, bonuses that are going to be paid in early 2025. Actually, probably the first time it it, it will be felt. But um, now organisations are able to um, set their own targets or, or, or expected maximum level of bonus so rather than being a restricted to two times you could they could set any number they think is appropriate based on the risk profile of the organization based on the roles of the individuals as well so different roles can have different percentages attached etc so um lots of stuff in there around you know being yeah, very much focused on risk management and safety and um it, the, the, this is not a, a license to pay enormous bonuses uh if it's not justified by the business model and the risk profile uh, but suffice it to say, what was a, originally a very unpopular, um, uh, certainly I mean, if you're a banker, very unpopular <laughs> rule change in, in, in Brussels has now, has now gone by the wayside. Um, the, uh, still on the Bank of England, they produced an update on their data transformation project. So I don't know, for those who listen to the podcast, you'll be familiar with you know, the FCA's digital transformation work that's been ongoing for a few years. They've been spending a lot of money on that. 
arguably by comparison, the Bank of England has been has been a bit behind uh, on that. Uh, but there's just, I can only get a sense from their latest update. Uh, and they, they talked about the things they've done already, but there seems to be a, a sense that uh, they're going to try and um, increase the speed and the momentum in terms of their own their own work around the digital transformation of the regulatory environment for for the bank. Um, and the, the final thing that came out of the Bank of England was a was a one line statement on Metro Bank. Actually, um, it was obviously in the news uh, a few weeks ago. The Metro were uh, desperately seeking additional capital uh, investment because of uh, the regulatory capital position. Um, they uh, succeeded, uh, and the uh, Bank of England produced a statement. The Prudential Regulation Authority welcomes the steps taken by Metro Bank to strengthen its capital position. Full stop. So um, that's good. Uh, I guess that was their way of saying uh, that we're we're relaxed, and, and so the market should be too. I think I think that's what it means anyway. Um, but obviously that's that's uh, that whole series of events around Metro has reignited what what has been off and on an ongoing an ongoing debate over the years about whether or not um, the capital rules, regulatory capital rules for banks for challenger banks and new banks are punitive to the to the extent that they, they are re aren't really able to compete. Um, I'm not saying anything will change there, but uh, but but it's uh, it's brought those uh, discussions to the to the head, to the fore once again. Um, that's enough about the Bank of England. Um, uh, regulatory initiative grid, Ben. I was just thinking now. When are we? When are we do a new one? Uh, any day now, potentially. Um, but it's it's not here yet. So yeah, it was last issued in February 2023. Uh, there was a statement in July that it will be updated during Q4 this year to reflect the future regulatory framework. There's not much more to say other than that the mm. Initiatives Grid webpage hasn't been updated since that statement in July was added to it. So it's a game of wait and see what arrives and when it arrives, because obviously Q4 could be anything up to New Year's Eve, couldn't it, if if they're not in a hurry? Or beyond. Uh Yes, I mean for, the, for anyone that doesn't know, the regulatory initiatives grid is is this coming together of the of all of the regulatory developments planned over the next two plus years uh, by industry and cross-cutting. It's you know, it's quite a useful document I find. Um, would meant to have been updated on a six monthly basis was was indeed updated on a six monthly basis for the first year or so. Has um that's that's that slipped a bit, but one would one would think the next iteration given it's taken into account as you say the uh, the new the, the future regulatory framework the changes to fisma um it could potentially be a uh, have some material differences in yeah, it compared the, to the next one's probably a uh, a bit more than the last few where basically the order of some stuff moved around and yeah that much yeah we so we will we are uh, uh for faithful podcast listeners can be assured we're keeping an eye out for it we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll let you know what it says when we see it um Okay, that's uh, that's enough on consultations and and, um, and and some of the new rules. Um, let's do the enforcement uh, news, which is um, I don't know. It's kind of I think the theme the theme for this is this is is, is it potentially that um, the cover up is worse than the crime, um, I, <laughs> um, which I think we probably already, we we actually already knew. I, I think, but it, it is very well illustrated by a couple of these cases. So one. Uh, and probably the highest profile one is that uh, uh, Jez Staley, Jeremy Staley, the former CEO of Barclays Bank, um, has been banned for life from uh, uh, performing a, a senior uh, management role or acting as a, a material risk taker in financial services in the UK. 
um, fined £1.8 million. Um, it's actually his second final notice because he was he was fined, I think it was back in 2018, because of steps then taken to out a whistleblower. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, he's in a, it's a, I think he's, I'm not sure it's a, a record, but I can't instantly think of any individual that has had two completely separate enforcements um, against them. So he's, he's definitely um, re reaching new heights. This one um, is a breach of uh, various individual conduct rules um, and stems from the uh, view the regulators. And this is a I mean, it's, it's an FCA uh, enforcement case. Uh, however, the Bank of England has issued a statement saying it agrees with the, <laughs> agrees with the the, uh, the uh, uh, final notice. Um, failures by uh, Mr. Staley to um, disclose accurately uh, his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, uh, obviously, Epstein was prosecuted in the US. Ultimately, and died in a jail cell, um, but. Um, uh, fairly unsavoury um, and various questions were asked to the Barclays board about the nature of the relationship uh, that uh, um, Jess Staley had uh, with Jeffrey Epstein and the Banks board um, as essentially put in writing that they, they, were, they were not close, that, uh, that, uh, they, 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 um, they had looked into it and were satisfied that the relationship wasn't a close one. Um, meanwhile, the regulators got their hands on you know, seven years of emails, 1,700 or so of them, um, in which the uh, deep and cherished relationship, I'm quoting there, uh, was discussed. Um, Mr Staley made multiple visits to Epstein's uh, properties, um, even visited him while he was serving a prison term, actually, in Florida. Um, so that's, that's reasonable. <laughs> I've got loads of casual acquaintances who I'd go and visit if they were in prison. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know you, you're 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 a generous soul. You would you would you would do it as for a, for a you know a vague a loose acquaintance. Um, yeah, uh, not you, not you would... not a work colleague. Don't go getting ideas. No, no. That, okay, okay. I won't I won't, uh, I won't hold my hopes at that. But um, yeah, well, you you and Jess Staley are clearly uh, peas in a pod then. Um, so uh... well, that's backfired. <laughs> So anyway, so the, uh, the, the FCA, uh, unsurprisingly, have come to the conclusion that they were misled, deliberately misled, um, or, and indeed that the Barclays board were deliberately misled by Mr. Staley, um, and uh, hence the ban, hence the fine. Interestingly, and in a sort of cliched fashion that, that we discussed in a lot of these other enforcement cases, um, uh, it's being appealed to the upper tribunal. Um, uh, so, so Mr. Jess Daly is appealing it. Um, he's fighting, fighting the ban. So the, if you look at the final notice, there's a big red print, red font um, paragraph at the front that says this is the subject to the upper tribunal review. Um, uh, and, you know, I guess, I guess it's an interesting one. I think, I think it probably uh, it, there may be an argument there, uh, which I, I don't think is a particularly good one, but there may be an argument that, uh, that actually the statements made, the false statements made were by the Barclays board, not, not directly by just daily. So to what extent is he responsible for what the board say? I don't know. It seems to be a fair amount of evidence that I want, you know, one, he, one assumes the board says what it says based on asking him some questions. Yeah, that, that's certainly that's certainly it, it seems to be the, the fact pattern set out in the, in the final notice. But but, you know, where where you're talking about a life ban for people, you know, the incentive, I guess, is, is to appeal it all the way. So. Um, 
Uh, related to this, I think, uh, I think the Barclays board are apparently considering uh, whether or not uh, Mr Staley should forego um, I think it's 18 million pounds worth of ongoing bonuses and long-term incentive uh, 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 that he's uh, that he's eligible for. So, uh, yes, um, some some quite uh, serious consequences to this if you're if you're just daily. Um, so that was that was that was one case where arguably the the the, the cover-up or the unwillingness to be honest has has kind of cost cost the perpetrator dear you you were looking at one weren't you which is more of an institutional level than the individual level uh yes so this is related to an incident back in 2017 uh personal data breach so obviously equifax inc is the us parent where it largely occurred and then equifax limited is the uk regulated entity within that group which the fca has just fined just over 11 million pounds uh, that's after the usual 30% discount for early settlement and there was another 15% credit for mitigation uh, in recognition of a high level of support during the investigation, voluntary redress provided to customers and significant remedial action that's since been taken. So this, this all relates to a cyber attack in 2017, which allowed intruders to gain access to personal data of 147.9 million individuals in the US. Uh, approximately 13.8 million in the UK and 19,000 in Canada, uh, a cyber attack which the FCA says in its final notice was foreseeable and entirely preventable. Mm. Uh, so the, the ICO have already fined Equifax £500,000. Um, the the FCA set out in its requirement notice a sort of timeline of the events to help explain how and why it's reached the conclusions it has. I think my best professional summary of this timeline is big yikes. Um, there are a couple of particular highlights that, that jump out. Uh, the security executive is informed about the incident. The security executive has told the FCA that he was told he would be dismissed if he asked further questions or informed <laughs> anyone else about the incident. He remains silent. Um, also, so Equifax Inc. Uh, told Equifax Limited about the incident approximately five minutes before they made a public press release about the cyber breach. And then in the, the day after that, the authority, so that's the FCA, learns about the incident through a press report, which is always, as we know, their favourite way to learn about any major incident, yeah. um, and contacts Equifax Limited to ask questions about the UK impact. Equifax Limited is unable to answer the FCA's questions because it does not have the information. Probably again as a result of them having only found out about it five minutes before the FCA did. Okay. So, yes, um, lots of parallels here. I think actually with the TSB cyber oh, yeah. incident, albeit that was a migration that went wrong rather than a cyber attack. Um, so there are three principles that Equifax have been fined for breaching. The first one being principle three: management and control. So this is for the breach itself and the poor risk management practices that allowed it to happen. And this is where I think there's the TSB mm. parallel, because effectively mm -hmm. Equifax Limited in the UK had outsourced all of this data processing to its parent in the US, yeah. Equifax Inc., yeah. and then didn't have a proper oversight procedure and arrangements in place around this in the same way that you would expect if they had been outsourcing it to someone who wasn't their parent entity. Um, obviously, there's always risks with outsourcing, like, for example, what if your outsourcer has a huge breach and only tells you about it five minutes before they go public? Um, these are probably the sorts of things the FCA thought were foreseeable and should have been preventable. 
Um, they've also been fined under principle six customers' interest. This is yep. partly because they didn't tell all of the affected customers because there was a section of the affected population that basically they would have had to do further tracing searches to find them to be able to contact them. Right. They decided that was too resource intensive and therefore didn't do it, right. which appears to be a decision that the SCA disagreed with. And they've also been fined under principle six because they were rapidly overwhelmed by the volume of complaints they received. And in response to this, uh, scaled back key elements of the complaints handling activity, particularly the QA. So the SCA feel that they exposed customers to the risk of harm through inadequate complaints handling. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, principle seven communications with clients, uh, largely due to some press releases which understated the scale of the breach. Um, so a lot there for the FCA to get its teeth mm. into. Um, again, interesting, you'd, you'd think the protection breach, those would traditionally be the ICOs. Yeah. Point, obviously, at the, at the time this took place, this evidently predated GDPR because the, the maximum fine under under the Data Protection Act as was, was £500,000, yes, which is what the yes. ICOs levied. So yeah. the FCA clearly feeling more was needed on top of that. Okay, so my takeaway is if, if, if you're in a senior position in the organization and you're told not to disclose something of a serious regulatory nature or you'll be fired then you possibly need to be looking for alternative employment i would think about I, that i think yeah i think <laughs> either, either get fired or leave your choices and they're both better than staying <laughs> well, aren't they ah oh, stonking okay okay so the, 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 those uh the, the, that that and and the just daily ban would be the the, the, the two humdingers i think the uh, other other bits of bobs in the enforcement um blog that I, i've seen uh, over the last month um the long-running lcf so um, lcf was the mini bond scandal and as as resulted in many 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 uh uh follow-on uh, events uh, including um, paying of compensation by the FCA including the Gloucester report and various action plans off the bar back of that anyway the, the, what, what has now happened is the LCF itself which is a regulated entity has been um, censured by the FCA so it's a final notice which doesn't impose a fine essentially because there's no money to pay a fine so it is it's one of those uh, cases where a, a, a censure takes place a final notice is issued but there's, but there's no financial penalty um, imposed uh, alongside it um, and uh, we have seen bands of three different advisors financial advisors these are people that participated in British Store Pension Scheme pension transfers which is a whole other area of, 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 of FCA focus and has been redress scheme going on there um anyway these are these are advisors that have uh, um considered to behave particularly badly um in relation to those transfers uh all three are banned two of the three are not actually appealing it to the upper tribunal because i think they decided to leave the industry and there's a cost involved obviously in appealing um they've also been fined collectively i think it was 158,000 pounds which will go to the financial services compensation scheme but it's worth noting the fscs has paid already paid out and there's still some in progress but they've already paid out eight million pounds redress on on the cases of those three advisors but anyway the advisors themselves are now going to have to chip in 158 158k um okay so i think i think that probably kind of wraps up upset the headlines from the from, 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 from the last month or so um thank you for everyone that's joined us today we will be back in a few weeks time to review uh, the next set of set of developments maybe we'll even have a regulatory initiative grid to look at we'll probably also have one or two things to say about consumer duty because well 
we always do. Um, uh, so thank you again for taking the time to join us today and uh, we'll speak to you really soon. Bye bye.